0: Archives, a ministry of North Clay Baptist Church. Here we explore the writings of church history in order to edify and equip the saints in their ongoing discipleship. In this series, we are reading and discussing Christianity and Liberalism by J. Gresham Machin. Written at the beginning of the 20th century, Machin's classic work remains as relevant today as it was when it was written. Machin sought to expose liberalism's foundations as contrary to that of orthodox, biblical Christianity. In his own words, Machen saw the issue in the church of the present day as being not between two varieties of the same religion, but at bottom, between two essentially different types of thought and life. So prepare yourself as we dive into the antithesis of Christianity and Liberalism by J. Gresham Machen. Hello again, and welcome back to the Art Into
1: Archives. Uh, Here we are discussing Christianity and liberalism. And our goal in discussing books like this is, as we say in our sort of tagline, is to edify and equip the saints in their ongoing discipleship. And that's, you know, true of, you know, sort of the big C church, if we can put it that way, but it's mostly true of our local congregation here, North Clay Baptist Church. Um, and kind of before we we kind of jump into a discussion uh, you know about that and and about the first two chapters of this book let me go ahead and introduce myself my name is pastor Drew Bieber and my co-host today is pastor Josh McDaniel as it is every day that's, that's right every single time that's right but um but we were kind of talking about this before we hit uh hit record and you know the sort of the main drive behind this podcast was to have a really another resource for you know, our our congregation here, uh, North Clay Baptist Church. And that kind of c- concept came from, um, you know, one, one of the big influences on my life, which is, you know, Jeff Durbin and um, Apologia Radio. Um, I've been, you know, listening to Apologia Radio for several years. Um, I've been an All Access member for as long as I've known about them, really. But one of the things Jeff always used to say on their on their radio program is that, you know, Apologia Radio is... A, a, The way he put it was an an extension of the teaching arm of Apologia Church. Mm -hmm. And that's really what we see this podcast as, as sort of an extension of the teaching arm of North Clay Baptist Church. And so hopefully, you know, hopefully wherever you are listening to this, hopefully you are encouraged, hopefully you're edified, hopefully you feel like you are being equipped in the faith. But more than anything else, we, you know, we want this to be a resource for our church here. And so I hope that it is. You know, mm-hmm. successful to, to that end. Um, but today, as I mentioned, we are discussing Christianity and liberalism. And in this discussion in particular, we're looking at the first two chapters of the book, which are doctrine and God and man. And so, Josh, I feel like God and man itself is two different doctrines. So yeah. why does he start with a chapter dedicated to just doctrine?
2: Okay, well, because... Again, you know, and we kind of cover this in the introduction, you know, that there was a prevailing thought of liberalism that was going on and, and the liberal ideas were permeating the, the churches, they were permeating the academic realm. And the idea there was that when we come to Christ, it's more important to, to, to look at christ more of more of like an example to follow than uh than a religion to believe in right and so if it's more of an example to follow christianity
1: is not a religion it's a relationship (laughs) that's right ah let me just go ahead and retire right now you got me we're done we're done discussing we'll see you next time forget it see
2: you guys no um if jesus is just an example to follow and not someone to believe or trust in, well, I don't really need to have doctrine to walk in his footsteps. I just need to see his path, and I just need to walk down that path. And I don't really need to be caught up in the whole uh, the whole thought process or get bogged down in figuring out who Jesus is or or who he was not or anything like that. Right, let me just right. let me just kind of follow him, you know. And that's that's kind of where he addresses it, you know, he says, you know, he addresses it in chapter 1 the idea that we need to have a doctrine and then he goes on to define in chapter Two, really, the most essential doctrine we need to hit first is the idea of God and man. Right. So right. that's that's where the idea comes up. You know, yes, God and man is a doctrine, and and so he's going to address certain doctrines. But before he even gets to that, he has to hit this idea that, hey, Christianity is not just an example to follow. No, it's a it's a truth to be believed
1: in. Right. Right. Absolutely. And you know. He goes on in in this first chapter on doctrine and he makes uh, he makes the statement about sort of the liberal understanding of doctrine and particularly of you know of creeds and confessions. And here's what he says. He says um, he he says the the objection of of liberalism uh, to the doctrines of Christianity involves an all-out skepticism. If all creeds are equally true as most liberalism would That's would right. affirm. Then since there are since they are contradictory to one another, they are all equally false or at least equally uncertain. That's right. And you know, this sort of idea that we don't need any creed we don't need, you know, I I just, you know, I I just want to, you know, follow Jesus. I just want to believe the Bible. You know, I don't, I don't need any creeds or confessions. What's the, what's the old saying, you know, no doctrine, but the Bible, no creed, but Christ. That's right. Um, but the problem is, is that that itself is a doctrine. And that itself is a creed. You know, we mentioned in, in the first discussion talking about this, this myth of neutrality. Well, you can't have a sort of doctrine-less Christianity or a doctrine-less way of life or religion or anything like that. Everything involves doctrine. And as soon as you say, well, I don't have any doctrine. Well, that itself is a doctrine. That's right. And it's, it's an inescapable concept. And
2: this is one of the weird areas, perhaps, and I, I don't have a, a, a I guess a full study of it or a full grasp of the timeline of anything like that, but this is one of those weird times where it seems like cultural arguments actually followed liberal Christian arguments rather than than the other that normally happens. In that there was this huge movement in his time to say that we don't really need doctrine we don't really need to get into the nitty gritty we don't need to really get into those sorts of things we just need a way of life to right, follow right. and and uh, you know a few years ago and it's still popular today maybe as there was this idea that was popular this this kind of almost bumper sticker slogan that all truth is relative and that wasn't a Christian statement that was a secular statement. They were saying all truth is relative, or that that there there is no absolute truth, which that statement is a self defeating statement. Right. Well, you're,
1: you're you're attempting to reject objective truth by stating a proposition that is supposedly objectively true. Right. I. Uh, I all truth will, is relative, except for that truth. That's that right. That truth is relative. That yeah. truth is objective.
2: That's right. That truth is concrete. That one's real. All truth is relative cannot be a true statement right. <laughs> if yeah. all truth is relative. In the same way, in the same, and it seems like in the timeline of it, that that line of thinking within secular minds followed the Christian mindset in that it was saying in itself Hey, all doctrine is irrelevant. Well, if that doctrinal statement is true, it's not irrelevant,
1: right? <laughs> you know, then it, all the, doctrine the, is irrelevant except this doctrine. That doctrine is irrelevant.
2: That's right. And so it's it's a weird concept that that perhaps maybe even that movement followed a Christian perversion or a not Christian perversion, but a perversion of the Christian belief, of the Christian uh, truth. There was a perversion saying no doctrine is needed. In the same way, the secularists jumped in there and said, well,
1: if if no doctrine is needed, well, then really no truth is needed. Right, right. Well, I mean, how does does the saying go? So goes the family, so goes the church, so goes the church, so goes society. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, you know, certainly there were competing ideologies within the culture and within society. But I think you're correct. I think that the reason it, it began to dominate the culture was because it began to be accepted in the church. That's right. That because, because the church decided, you know, for whatever reason, not to take a stand on these issues. Well, because the church capitulated, then we saw society capitulate. That's right. That's right. And, and it is, you know, immediately.
2: And I remember several, um, pastors, teachers addressing this at the time. I mean, within the Christian circles, as well as the secular circles that, Hey, the second you start going down that route, chaos ensues. Yes. Yes. The moment you start to say that truth doesn't matter, you've got a problem. Secular, uh, uh, teachers and academics were saying that as well as Christian in the same way, In the same way, the moment that thought permeated Christian thinking that doctrine really doesn't matter, what we say about who Christ is doesn't matter nearly as much as following what he did, once that line of thought started coming into it, Christians immediately started taking up the banner that, no, the moment you got on that trail you
1: wind up
2: in a terrible place
1: right right I mean and we're seeing that on a grand mm-hmm. scale we' today. are seeing that absolutely because it still it still exists today yeah oh for sure and you know g- going on in in the introduction you know he he makes this this assertion that if all cre- creeds are equally true well then they're all equally false mm-hmm. so how can we be tolerant of all creeds which basically means we're tolerant of no creeds that's right right if we're tolerant of no creeds that means we're tolerant of all creeds which is Like you said, it's incoherent. It doesn't make any sense. That's right. But he goes on to say, very different is the Christian conception of a creed. According to the Christian conception, a creed is not merely an expression of Christian experience, but on the contrary, it is setting forth those facts upon which experience is based. That's right. And so it's not simply this experience of following Jesus that is sort of the goal, but it's trying to lay out like the experience of following following Jesus depends on a historic reality of the person of Jesus that, that an actual man, you know, who was fully man and fully God was crucified outside Jerusalem and was risen on the third day and ascended and is seated, you know, on high at the right hand of the father. Like we base our experience on those facts yeah, as true facts yeah.
2: And he makes the statement uh, as well that that when we when we're in the Christian religion when we're in the Christian faith, we're not just walking. And that, that that the Christian to follow after Christ is not just to follow after an ideal, but it's to follow after an object of faith.
1: Yes, and yes. that
2: that he is a real, a tangible, a legitimate, honest to goodness person. And he is not only a person, he is
1: God as well, which right. he
2: goes on to, to espouse which, yeah, later I mean, on. And that's,
1: you know, in that chapter on Christ, that's one of the main things he's putting forth mm-hmm. is that Jesus, you know, according to scripture, according to the church fathers, according to the apostles was not, uh, simply an example of what it means to have faith, right. but he right. is the object right. of our faith. That's right. But that distinction is a doctrinal distinction. It's an absolutely and if we reject doctrine, if we reject doctrine, well, then it makes sense that we sort of have these, you know, like you said, these contrary, these incoherent ideas that there's no such thing as doctrine. Uh, the reason we accept that is because we don't have a foundational understanding of what doctrine is and what That's it's right. supposed to be.
2: There is a a popular statement out now, you know, that uh, and again, you've you've alluded to it. I don't need. Any doctrine only the Bible you know I don't need to um, I don't need to do anything but just follow after Jesus and then the moment you ask the question well who is Jesus and you have to answer that question you start diving into doctrine right and if we don't know who Jesus is which is what doctrine informs us then we don't know who we're even trying to follow
0: right right?
2: And so it's a it's a completely self defeating thing to say that we don't need doctrine. And Machen really kind of brilliantly points that out. He kind of brings it up, and he kind of he lets their statements almost self defeat themselves, you know. And, it, and that's why he can, in the next chapters, then start saying, "Now let's go into doctrine," <laughs> you know, because because they obviously have a doctrine, right? Right. They obviously have a set of beliefs. It's not just some sort of, you know, it's not just some sort of feeling our way through it. No, they, they have a set of beliefs and a set of doctrines. Right, right. And he brings those to light. But before he does that, he lets their argument defeat itself. Yes. And he absolutely. lets them kind of lie a crumbled mess on the ground just by pointing out the obvious. Yeah. If you're going to follow after this man and say he's worth
1: following, well, then doctrine has to inform you why he's worth following. <laughs> Right, right. Uh, and, and he goes on to say this, you know, he starts sort of, uh, you know, talking about specifically Paul and, and the doctrines of Paul. Mm-hmm. And, and here's what he has to say about that. He says, Paul was not interested merely in the ethical principles of Jesus. Mm-hmm. He was not interested merely in general principles of religion or ethics. On the contrary, he was interested in the redeeming work of Christ and its effect on us. His primary interest was in Christian doctrine. Christian doctrine, not merely in its presuppositions, but at the center. So he was, you know, and you see this especially in, you know, the book of Galatians. Yeah. Um, where, you know, Paul isn't, Paul's not arguing for, um, you know, this sort of loose, you know, non-doctrinal Jesus, um, you know, that the modern liberals are are advocating. Yeah. I- instead, no, he's he's pointing and, and he's he's trying to lay out a doctrinal understanding of who Jesus was and what he did. Mm-hmm. And because of who he is a, and because of what he did, uh, this is why we don't require uh, circumcision of the Gentiles in right. order to be part of the faith. Right, Because that's a fundamental denial of who Jesus is right. and what he's done. And he goes on to say this uh, later on. He says, if Christianity is to be made independent of doctrine, then Paulinism must be removed from Christianity root and branch, and to me, I think this is you know this is the biggest thing is that if we're going to reject doctrine, if if true Christianity is a less Christianity, well then we've got to we've got to take a hatchet to the Bible and cut kind of a good be- bit of it out. A we good do. deal with it out. We do because there's so much that is in the Bible that's
2: not narrative, right? <laughs> you know, anything that is not narrative, and actually most of the narrative jumps into doctrine. I mean, all of it jumps into defining who God is by narrative, by prophecy, by epistles. Right. You know, right. you name it, it goes into defining who God is, it goes into defining who man is, it goes into defining what the scripture is, who Christ is, what salvation is, and what the church is. Yeah. And all of those doctrines are clearly, clearly brought up in every single Book of the Bible, right? In right. every single way in which it's written, through every style, through every uh
1: different. Well, author. you look at you look at Jesus, you know, and the liberals want to hang on to Jesus while rejecting, you know, doctrine. It's like on the road to Emmaus. What did Jesus do except give a doctrinal lesson of the entire Old Testament? Right, and who did it point to? It all pointed to him. But in order to do that, in order to take the narratives, in order to take the history, the mm-hmm. prophecy. And understand it he had to give a doctrinal understanding of what right. these th- of what these things were Obviously. And so how can, if Jesus is our primary example well how can how can we reject how can we accept certain aspects of his example and then reject this aspect of his example where he's clearly laying out doctrine for those well, disciples
2: obviously like you said we got to cut that part out of the Bible right? yeah we just yeah. got to do that or or we have to receive the whole Bible. And we have to understand that no, it teaches us valuable lessons, right? In
1: what we are to believe, what we are rightly to believe, and what we are to understand,
2: and that's doctrine.
1: Well, and this is one of my most frustrating things with you know, uh, with liberalism, and you know, with really, uh, you know, kind of every sort of variant of, of liberalism. And I get the idea reading this book that Machen was kind of frustrated with this as well. That to me, I'm like, if we're going to you know, go ahead and slice and dice the scriptures in order to make it fit our ideology. Well, then it's not Christian anymore. Why are you so jealous for that title? Why do you? Yeah. Why do you want to hang on to this idea of Christianity when you clearly reject fundamentals of the faith? Yeah. Why do you? Why not want just call to, it something else? Why, why do not call want it
2: McDanielism be.
1: or yeah. Bieberism?
2: Yeah. Why do you want to be a Christian if you hate I think Christianity there is a so much?
1: Right? They call them believers. Believers. That's, yeah, that's, that's it. exactly what they are. Uh-huh. Hey,
2: believer. Uh, that's actually, okay. All right. So you've just started a cult now
1: yeah. No, that that cult already exists. I was not aware. Yeah. Well, that's what they call Justin Bieber fans is believers. Oh yeah. Oh. See, I was trying to make a joke and you didn't even get my joke. Gosh, I'm so old.
2: <laughs> <laughs> um, but like, um, In those sorts of things, you know, when, when you look at what Machen was frustrated about is, is look, you want the title of Christian, but you don't want to be Christian. Right. Why even want the title? What does the title
1: get you if you don't want the legitimacy of what the title is? Right. Well, and I think he, you know, he tackles at least one aspect of this in the last chapter where he does, you know, he kind of mentions, um, you know, the liberals want to hang on to the Christian title because then that means they get all the things that the Christians mm-hmm. have built up to this point. Yeah. And, you know, I, I think in most cases that's, that's the reality. It is. But if we're, you know, I think if pushed to be intellectually honest, I think most, you know, quote, liberal Christians would have to agree that, well, actually I'm not teaching Christianity. I'm teaching something else. Mm hmm. And, you know, again, I just don't. I just th- that part of it is so frustrating, and I don't get it. It makes no sense to me. It
2: makes no sense to anybody who thinks beyond a kindergarten level of thought, beyond door the explorer. It makes no sense. Right. Right. Um, so it is funny to to me that that in order to prove, in order to prove that doctrine is important. The next chapter that he goes to to is to to take their doctrine of god and man which it they have a doctrine right, of god right. and man he has to move on and say now let's take your doctrine your understanding of god and man and let's see how it lines up with the scripture and right. of course it doesn't yes it, it collapses before the scripture but it is funny to me that after talking about you say no doctrine We have to deal with your doctrine of
1: God and man. And I mean, he he very succinctly sort of, again, frames the issue um, in in this chapter on doctrine. He says, from the beginning, the Christian gospel, as indeed the name gospel or good news implies, consisted in an account of something that had happened. Right. And from the beginning, the meaning of the happening was set forth. And when the meaning of the happening was set forth, then there was Christian doctrine. (laughs) So it's not just understanding the event, but understanding the meaning of the event. That's doctrine. And so he goes on to say, Christ died. That is history. Christ died for our sins. That is doctrine. Without these two elements joined in an absolutely indissoluble union, there is no Christianity. So you can't have Christianity without doctrine. And that's really the primary point of this first chapter is Machen is trying to establish the fact that if you take doctrine out of Christianity, you no longer have Christianity because Christianity is a doctrinal religion. And not only is he trying to lay out that Christianity is built upon a doctrine that the, the Christian faith is built upon doctrine, but he's also trying to establish the fact that doctrine itself is an inescapable concept, that everyone has a doctrine. Right. Uh, even if your doctrine is just the rejection of doctrine, that's that still a doctrine. is still a doctrine. Yeah. And so that's why that's why he starts with this concept of doctrine. And as he moves into the other chapters— you know, they're really building upon this foundation. Hey, the Christian the Christian faith is doctrinal. And not only that, liberalism in their rejection of doctrine actually have doctrines that are contrary to the Christian faith. Yeah. And he starts in chapter 2 with the doctrines of God and with man. Yeah, and it's interesting that he starts
2: with God uh, first. And man, um, there are two schools of thought, and you and I have kind of talked about this. When it comes to guys who write down their their theologies, or they put down together their dogmatics or their doctrines, right? right. When they put them down, uh, and they try to make them systematic to where, hey, it's 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 easy to comprehend and to understand, and each one builds on top of each other. There are two, I guess, traditional schools of thought in terms of where do you start your doctrinal position. And guys like Wayne Grudem or Millard Erickson, they always start theirs with Scripture. Right. You right. start with, you know, well, how can we know God if we don't have the text and support the revelation of God? Right, right, You know, right. But then there's another school of thought, which, you know, at least Machen in this book, guys like John Calvin... They start with God, yeah. Who right. is God? Who is this great and powerful being that we say we worship? And I've always kind of leaned towards that. Maybe it's because it's the first one that I, I came to with Calvin's Institutes and and how he starts off with, uh, you know, an understanding of who God is. And and I don't think he talks about the Scripture until chapter six of uh, the first book in the Institutes, but. I've always appreciated that, and I appreciate how Machen goes there. If we're going to have this lofty idea of doctrine, then we need to have a lofty idea of God.
1: Right, right, and really, those you know, when it comes to the Christian faith, those those are really the foundational elements of Mm -hmm. the Christian faith. Mm -hmm. It's your understanding of God, the Revealer, and His Word, the Revelation. Yeah, and and we really can't understand Scripture, His Revelation, properly unless we understand the one doing the revealing the author right. of scripture and vice versa we can't we're not free to make up our own conception of who God is only God can define his terms right. and he does that in terms of the scripture right and so like you said it's traditionally those are the two starting points in any uh, confession uh, you know statement of faith uh, systematic theology, uh, you know, you mentioned Grudem. I mean, the 1689 and the Westminster Confession both yeah. start with with the doctrine of scripture. Yeah, they both start with that, and and, and that's not wrong. Yeah, and chapter neither, one starts with scripture. The uh, Baptist Faith and Message starts with scripture right. as well. And again, and like you said, no, neither of those are, are incorrect. Right. In the same way that matron starting with God is is not incorrect, but it's
2: well, more of a preference maybe, sure, or or sure. it's just or you know what serves, I guess the the end result of where I want to be what serves as the best launching point and right, Machen right. I think rightly after his conversation through chapter one of we need doctrine and you need to understand that to deny doctrine is I mean even to deny doctrine is a doctrine you yes. know I mean yeah. so that we have to recognize doctrine is in front of us so what doctrine should we begin with and I think he's right with the premise
1: that yeah. he starts with to go right into let's talk about god yeah but regardless of regardless of your preference uh we have to recognize that either we start with god's word or we start with god himself mm-hmm. and if we start with god's word we can't do so without recognizing that it's one word revealed by the one true and living right, God. Right. and if we're starting with god it's not just our own conception of god it's the guy that's revealed in his word right you know those two are uh, uh as, as Machen put it, indissolubly linked. Yeah, and, and it's interesting because he, he does
2: um, pretty quickly gravitate to the point, if we're talking about God, this is a this is a God who is lofty, and He is high, and He is excellent, and it's not a God of your own making. Right. It's not right. a God in your own image. Rather, we are in God's image.
1: Yes, and so the first main sort of big idea he... Um, he kind of takes up in regards to liberalism's conception of god is the the liberal sort of position is that knowledge of god is not absolutely necessary right and he kind of makes this distinction between what he calls theoretical knowledge and practical knowledge but one of the things he 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 points out is that is that liberalism sort of thinks that knowledge of God is not what's necessary, but sort of a, an experience of God. Or, it's not or what you know, it's what you feel Feel is presence, yeah. exactly, yeah. exactly. And, you know, that, I mean, that's such a, that's such a squishy, like, thing to say, and it's such a squishy position. It like, is. Because, you know, and, and I think Jeff Durbin puts it this way, he's like, did I really feel God or did I just eat something funny? Yeah. And really what I'm feeling is indigestion. Yeah, right. and because at the end of the day, you know, to
2: to say that we can feel spirit is is uh, man there's uh, what do you what do you put as the parameters on that what do you put as the as the test on that right. yeah well, I mean, well the glory cloud i think would be the right which Hey, you know, there are churches that sit there and say they've got a glory cloud, little specks of, or specks of gold dust come conveniently out of the air conditioning ducts, you know, and they, because when God, God's spirit wants to
1: descend upon the church, he does it through the air vents.
2: He does. He does. And it's in gold, well, maybe more glittery flex or, you know, or a, uh, an angel feather. They've said that angel feathers ah, float yeah. down into their congregation. You know, and and for those of you who don't, who aren't aware of what we're talking about, there is a church in California that they say that they have a glory cloud that descends. I'll down. go ahead and name the names.
1: It's Bethel Church. It's Bethel in Church. California. Yeah, and um, it's unfortunate because Bethel puts out a lot of good music. Well, let me back that up. They put out, they have a lot of very talented artists mm-hmm. and their music is very high quality. Mm-hmm. Uh, theologically speaking, it's not quality. It's
2: every once in a while you get a gym
1: yeah every now and then it's good. but at any rate, you know ch- churches like this sort of w- want to emphasize the experience um, and they are not concerned at all. With the knowledge. Right. And so it's interesting, or not interesting, but it is
2: worthwhile to note that what Machen was combating against way on back when he wrote this book is still being fought today. Uh, I read an article uh, put out by Desiring God uh, in 2014. It was written by a guy named Stephen Miller. And the name of the article is Worship in a Selfie World. And hmm. this, to me, kind of modernizes what Machen's argument was that, you know, he was saying that they, they're all about the experience of God, not the doctrine of God. It's not really who you know, it's what you feel about God. Right. Right. And
1: he wrote, uh, this article, Stephen Miller did. It starts off with this. That's not, that's not the same Steve Miller as Steve Miller band. No, not that Steve just wanted Miller. To make
2: sure. Uh, this guy is a worship pastor in, in Dallas, Texas, where he was at the time of the article. And he writes Wow! God really met with us in worship tonight. The room was just so full of His presence. One of the most intense times of worship I have ever experienced. This caption recently came through my Instagram notifications. I was curious to see the photo this student had taken to commemorate his experience. I never would have expected a picture of a young man standing in front of a mirror in his bathroom with a bewildered smirk on his face. Yet there he was, a duck faced teenager staring at his bathroom mirror, smartphone in hand. What this had to do with how much he loved worshiping Jesus was a mystery to me. But that opening statement and the, the article goes on, describe the generation, describe the world we live in, and describe yeah, how we yeah. but um that opening sentence or that opening little story really highlights that we're still wrestling with this. That yes, kid, yes. man, I felt God. And to commemorate my feeling of God, it's a picture of me in my moment of feeling him or in my aftermath of feeling him. That's what experiencing God is, or that's
1: what knowing God is. It's what I felt in worship. Right. And As, ultimately, if if that's your goal, if your goal is to experience certain feelings, then what, what to me is plainly obvious is that this has little to do with God and has more to do with yourself. Mm-hmm. It's more about you and your feeling and your experience than it is actually uh, communion with the one true and living God. Which is what the liberal preacher would have wanted back then. Right, right. And that's what liberal preachers today still push. And what's always funny, too, is that you know when we read the Scriptures, whenever... God is manifestly present amongst people. Uh, There's never this feeling of, you know, sort of, you know, sweet emotions. (laughs) Yeah. Like it's always accompanied by terror. I don't think Moses walked away with some
2: warm fuzzies after being told, take off the sandals from your feet because the place in which you're standing is holy ground.
1: I don't think that was a warm, fuzzy moment. Right. Yeah. I don't just think, oh my goodness, I'm about to experience. I'm about to feel. Right. Um, No, he was, he was terrified. I mean, what immediately comes to mind is Isaiah six, when Isaiah yes. is, is having this vision of of worship in heaven, and what's his response? His response is not "Oh, my feelings, it's just so wonderful." No, his 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 response is "Woe is me."
2: Yeah, it's not a woe; it's a woe.
1: He he you know, recognizes his his, his his well, he recognizes his sinfulness yeah. and the fact that I'm in the presence of a holy God, and I should I deserve to die. Yeah, and yeah. And so it's, I mean, it's so, so this idea that we can have a sort of experience of God that is absent from the knowledge of God is, I mean, it's, it's foolhardy is what it is. And ultimately it ends up, it ends up finding its root in man and not in God himself.
2: Yeah. And it's, it's one that. And we will get to the doctrine of man, you know, here in just a moment, but he does a good job of kind of separating here that when we're talking about God, it is a lofty and a righteous and a good thought. And it is an uplifting thing, not a warm and fuzzy thing, not an experiential thing. But when we know God for who he is, it is, it is a. A blessed thing to know the God of the Bible, right? Right. So he doesn't sit there and say that that you know he doesn't divorce or or separate knowledge of God from loving God or from even feeling rightly about Him.
1: Well, it's not that experience is wrong, right? It's that experience is not primary, right? And An experience that's the has to be rooted in in knowledge. And so, you know, he, he kind of goes on and really hits on this second big idea that's, that's obviously uh, very much connected to the first. And, and he, goes on to this, uh, he goes on to say this later in the chapter, uh, but the liberal conception of God differs even more fundamentally from the Christian view uh, than in a different circle of ideas connected with the term- terminology of fatherhood. He says, the truth is that liberalism has lost sight of the very center and core of the Christian teaching. And he goes on a little bit later to say, one attribute of God is absolutely fundamental in the Bible. And that one, ap- uh, one attribute that is absolutely necessary in order to uh, render intelligent all the rest of the attributes of God is his awful transcendence. Mm-hmm. Yes. And he goes on uh, to say this, from the beginning to the end, the Bible is concerned to set forth an awful gulf that separates the creature from the creator. This is what in you know, philosophical Christian circles has been referred to as the creator-creature distinction. And
0: right. again,
1: if we're to have a, a right and a true and a biblical theology, it has to be rooted, and like we said, in God's revelation and in who God is, what His nature is. And we have to recognize that there is a strong distinction, a great gulf that exists between the creature. And the creator, the way that I've laid this out for our students in, um, a series I did earlier this year, talking about, uh, you know, who, who God is, as I said, there's basically two categories of ontological being, mm-hmm. and there's only two categories. Now, when we deal with the, uh, um, when we deal with ontology, what we're dealing with is, is the nature of being what makes a cow, a cow, all cows have four legs, but yeah. not everything with four legs is a cow. That's, and so trying to, to zero in on what exactly is it that makes a cow a cow and differentiates it from other four-legged animals like a horse or a dog, mm-hmm. that's, that's what ontology is concerned with. And so when we're talking about ontological categories of being, we're talking about at the very essence and nature of what their being is, there's only two categories. Yeah. And those two categories are there's God and there's not God. Right. And that's it. And obviously, when we look at creation, you know, uh, when we read the creation account, we see that uh, God created man in his own image as the crown of his good creation. And so there's obviously something that sort of distinguishes us from the rest of creation. But once you get down to the very bottom, we still fall in that not God yeah, category. We are Along not. with this microphone and this chair that I'm sitting in and the sweater that I'm wearing and the grass that I walked over on my way in here. Right. All of that is not God, which means it is not worthy of praise, which which means it is not worthy of,
2: of, you know, reverence or anything like that. Only God is right. Only God is good. Only he deserves praise. Only he deserves honor. And so we have to be willing. And I think Machen would have said this to the liberal preacher back then. We have to be willing to come to the end of our worship of ourselves and come to the beginning of we need to know God and we need to be ready to worship God. Not all the not God
1: category, right, right, but just God. Well, and if uh, you know, again, if we're chasing our feelings, well, then what have we placed as sort of the object of our worship? A not God, a, a, yeah, something in the not God category. Which, I mean, we're like we're doomed from the start if that's mm-hmm. if that's sort right. of our starting point. If we're if we're chasing something that falls in the not God category, and. He goes on to sort of uh, lay out, you know, very clearly uh, what modern liberalism sort of, uh, how they break this down. He goes, uh, in modern liberalism, on the other hand, the sharp distinction between God and the world is broken down and the name, quote, God is applied to the mighty world process itself. Yeah. And yeah, so this yeah. idea of God is sort of in this sort of abstract, ethereal, you know, uh, he's this is, moving, he's, doing, he's moving, he's, he's doing, you know, and we get to, we get to just feel experience his presence and, feel
2: and move it. with him. And yes, it's kind of, it's, it, that it's, it's wrapped up in, in, and we're moving with God and, and we're feeling his leading and his guiding and, Right, and, and and we can get swept up in it, but that kind of stuff it, it creates empty heads, right? You know, right? And it creates it, it so
1: you know, and and, it, and it's ultimately pantheistic. Yes, and this it, is yes, this, yes. yes this is. to me is the is the best summary of of the liberal doctrine of God, as he says. Uh, modern liberalism, even when it is not consistently pantheistic, it is at any rate pantheizing. Yeah, and and and, and again, when we understand. These these ontological categories. There's God, and then there's not God, and then we place this sort of, uh, you know, uh, we place this sort of premium on a particular feeling. Well, mm-hmm. w- w- what have we just done? We've taken something that is not God and tried to make it as though it was God. Well, that feeling is what truly is God. Well, no, that feeling is not God. Right. It falls in that not God category. Right. And essentially, what we're doing, like Machen said, is we're tr- we're, we're pantheizing the world around right. us. We're we're not consistently pantheistic. We don't actually think God is in the chair. Right. But we're trying to, in essence, deify our feelings. Right. Because those are really what are worth worshiping or worth striving after. Right.
2: It's it's worth seeking after a feeling or a passion more than it is worth. We, we'd rather seek after that than seek after God. And vodi has a really interesting quote. Looking at the modern church today, again, what Machen was fighting then, we still see present today. He says the modern church is producing passionate people filled with empty heads who love the Jesus they don't know very well. Right. Right. And this kind of idea that I'm seeking or I'm passionately pursuing a feeling rather than passionately pursuing God, Christ, the things that he has revealed about himself as he has revealed himself. Yeah. Then You've got an empty head but boy, you're
1: passionate about something you don't know right right which is always which is always just wonderful and you know toward, <laughs> t- towards the end of so this wonderful. of this section on the doctrine of God he says uh, modern liberalism tends everywhere to break down the separateness between God and the world and the sharp personal distinction between God and man. Even the sin of man on this view ought logically to be regarded as part of the life of God very different. Is the living and holy God of the Bible and of the Christian faith, right. and so this sort of ethereal, abstract, you know, feelings-based God of liberalism is very different from the God that is revealed in the Scriptures right. of the of the true and living God. Uh, but he goes on towards the the last half of this chapter, and not only does liberalism differ with understanding with their understanding of who God is, but they also yeah. differ on their understanding of man
2: right and he he takes it from this lofty understanding of who god is and he's 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 big and he's grand and he's great and he 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 moves it down to where man is and and it's interesting because if we get down to it what man has worshiped as god by the liberal preacher is man-centered emotion so he's going to take and he's going to deconstruct man now if god is great and greatly to be praised and defined in scripture as a holy, right, and perfect and righteous God. Well, what is man described as? It's not it's not the lofty means by which God is experienced. You know, right. which is kind of right. where they take it from, you know, where they take it to.
1: Yeah. And so in the opening paragraph of this section on man, he, here's what he has to say. He says, according to the Bible, man is a sinner under the just condemnation of God. Mm-hmm. According to modern liberalism, there is really no such thing as sin at the very root of the modern liberal movement is the loss of the consciousness of sin. Yeah. And that's, that's a concept of man that we have in our day is that, it is. is that there's really no such thing as sin. Uh, you know, uh, you know, either a, we say that, you know, sin is just the result of our environment, you know, well, he would not have done that if, you know, this bad thing hadn't happened to him. Like, mm-hmm. he's really good. And that's and that's something we hear more than anything else, is that man is naturally good. I think if you look up Wretched Radio, you know, when Todd yeah. Friel is on the street talking with people, I think... Oh, uh,
2: people love, love, love to talk about their own goodness.
1: Right, right. And, and uh, you know, uh, Ray Comfort as well, you mm-hmm. know, ask, do you think man is generally good? Uh, I mean... You're looking at 80 to 90 percent of people. Well, yeah, absolutely. Man is man is definitely, you know, definitely good. You know, or he wants to do good. And in his heart of hearts, he is good. But even if though even if
2: you'll find someone who says that maybe man is maybe half and half or maybe man as a as, you know, a whole is not basically good. They'll look at you and they'll say, but but I am. <laughs> you yeah, know, but I'm good. You know, and every single man will say that about their own behavior. Right. Well, you right. Know, maybe
1: everyone else might have some problems. I'm good, though. Right. I'm basically and, good. And this is, you know, again, if, if we're to understand God rightly, we have to understand him as he has revealed himself. Mm-hmm. And since God is the author and he is the creator and he is the sovereign, if we are to understand ourselves who are creatures, right. we have to understand them in light of God's revelation, in light of how he actually created us. Right. I can take a guitar and use it as a baseball bat, but that would... Fundamentally, go against what it was designed for, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and only when I understand sort of its purpose can I rightly say, okay, this does this should not be used as the baseball bat, or even how it's constructed. Right? Yeah. You know. And so, if we're, if you know, in the same way that we're not free to make up our own conception of who God is, we're also not free to make up our own conception of who we are. That's right. Because again, we fall in that not God category. We're creatures, right? Which means that ultimately we answer to our Creator. We were right. created for a purpose, for right. a, a particular design, and if we act contrary to that, well, th- that's the essence of what sin is. Yeah, is acting contrary to God's nature, His character, His commands. You know, our design, the way He made us. Yeah, but you can't you
2: can't say that because we don't really talk about sin. You know, right? We don't, we don't right.
1: really we don't need to go into that level. And this
2: is something as a children's pastor, I have heard ever since I've started. Okay, that you need to talk about the love of God, you need to talk about the goodness of Jesus, which we, we do, and you need to talk about the miracles, and you need to talk about and you need to talk about the sacrifice of Jesus even. But it is I've been told it is a wrong idea or it is a it is not recommended to talk with children about their sin. Certainly not to talk about the consequences of their sin, which would be death, hell, and the grave. But just focus in on those things that are that are good to talk about right, with right. the Bible. And that way... Which makes me feel good. Right. It makes me feel good like about we're, we're, myself. We're, we're back to feelings. Right. It makes me feel good about myself. It makes me feel good about the people sitting next to me. And you know what? At the end of the day, we
1: just feel generally... Okay. And that's really what we need, is we just need to feel good or better than I feel right now.
2: And Machen was dealing with this concept way back when he wrote this book. Yes. Almost a hundred years ago. We're still in the
1: thickness of this fight today. Yeah. And so he goes on to kind of explain why this sort of consciousness of sin in the culture, particularly the American culture, the Christian culture, like, what's the, like, where did this come from? Like, mm-hmm. how, why have our, why has our consciousness of sin sort of waned over the years? And so he kind of talks about, you know, the wars, the civil war, the first world war. And he's kind of looking at these things going, you know, definitely, you know, he makes this point. He says, uh, uh in a, in a time of war, our attention is called so exclusively to the sins of other people that we are sometimes inclined to forget our own sins. Yeah, yeah. And I think, you know, that can definitely be true of our day is we are, we like to highlight the sins of others, you know, ultimately I think it's out of a desire to make ourselves feel better about our own sins. Well, at least I'm not as bad as so-and-so. And well, at, at least I've never committed murder. At, at least I'm not a racist.
2: Uh, at the time that we're, you know, recording this right now, the biggest thing that right now is being projected on the news and, and media, you know, is, 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 uh, is, well, at least I'm not a Democrat or at right. least I'm not a Republican right now, it's party lines that are dividing everything right, up, you right? Right, and that's 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 a dangerous place to be in. It's just as dangerous, yeah, as where Machen was finding himself within the church. It's just as dangerous as as us saying, "Well, at least I'm not Hitler." You, right, know? Right. you know, we find ourselves. We always are so willing to justify our own behavior under the banner of, "Well, I'm basically good,"
1: but those people aren't. Yeah. And, you know, he goes on to, to really zero in on what the issue is, because if we're looking at things like that, you know, um, those are somewhat peripheral issues mm-hmm. that, that, you know, obviously contribute to the problem, but that's not the actual root of the problem. Right. The root of the problem is not that other people are actually really bad. And because they're really bad, I'm not, I'm not looking in the mirror. Uh, but he goes on to, to say this. He says, but the loss of the consciousness of sin is far deeper than the war. And then a few sentences later, he says the change is nothing less than the substitution of paganism for Christianity as the dominant yeah. view of life. Yeah, And ultimately, you know, again, going back to knowledge of God and knowledge of God's word, this ultimately goes back to we are not being educated by God and his word. We're being educated by pagans and not just and our feelings and, and not and not just, mm-hmm. you know. In particular, like pagan people are educating us, but our worldview is so informed by yes. pagan ideologies. Yes, whether that be, you know, postmodernism, uh, you know, critical theory, whatever it is, or just follow your heart. Yeah, or just follow your heart. Yeah, yeah. You look at that in our culture. You know, that's a big Disney, you know, push. Is that yeah. you just if you just follow your heart, it'll all be good in the end. And we never stop to ask ourselves, well, is that consistent with Scripture? Yeah. Instead, we just, instead, we just, we enjoy the entertainment. We enjoy the movie. And then we begin to actually imbibe those, those notions. We begin to imbibe those, those ideologies. We begin to say, well, I'm not sure what I need to study in college. I I don't really know what decision to make. I'm just going to follow my heart. Yeah. Yeah. And we don't recognize that something that is not only not found in the Bible but something that is actually contrary to the teachings of the Bible has now become our way of viewing the world and our mm-hmm. way of making decisions.
2: Mm-hmm. And so, and again, that goes back the whole, you know, just follow your heart. It goes back to the idea that my heart is basically good. My heart really is going to lead me in the right direction because it's going to be right, you know, in this mindset that, that, Goodness is just flowing out of us and through us. Right. When in actuality, the Bible tells us very plainly that the heart is not right. The heart is not good. No, the heart is deceitful. Above all things, the heart is dead. It is a heart of stone. And we need God to give us a new heart, a heart of flesh.
1: And he goes on to say, Paganism is optimistic with regard to unaided human nature, whereas Christianity is the religion of the broken heart. Yes. And he goes on to say, you know, by broken heart, I don't mean that we're always in this, you know, sort of, uh, we have this posture, this continual posture of, oh, oh, is me. I'm just yeah, we're so not awful. Either. I'm just sore. Right, exactly. But he goes on to say, on the contrary, Christianity means that sin is faced once for all, and then it is cast by the grace of God forever into the depths of the sea. And so Christianity doesn't have this idea that, hey, you're basically good. Yeah. Just follow your heart. It has this idea that, no, you are a sinner. The heart is deceitful above all else, and it's desperately wicked. But it doesn't leave us there. It doesn't just say, hey, you're a terrible person, and too bad. There's nothing we can do about it. But instead it says, and because you're such a terrible person, God sent his son.
2: Mm -hmm. And he sent his
1: son to deal with sin, finally, fully, completely on the cross at Calvary. And it's only when we come to terms with our own Depravity and our own sinfulness that we can truly understand the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's only so, as Machen clearly points out in this chapter, we have to understand who God is first and foremost. Mm -hmm. And we're not free to make up a God of our own mind in the same way we're not free to make up a God of our own hands. But second to that, we have to come to terms with our own nature. Yeah. And that is the nature of a creature that has fallen into sin. And only when we reckon with that can we fully come to know and appreciate and truly understand the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that groundwork is what catapults
0: us into the next chapters. We hope that you enjoyed this discussion of Christianity and liberalism. And we hope that it has been edifying to you and your walk with Christ. Now this conversation is by no means exhaustive, so we pray that our
1: discussion leads to meaningful conversations with friends and family as you learn what it means to contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. If you have any questions or comments, feel free to contact us at podcasts at northclay.org. For more information from North Clay Baptist Church or from the Ardent Archives, visit our website at www.northclay.org. We look forward to learning with you again soon here on the Ardent Archives.